and welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've read that week. This week, I wrote about, in two columns, I wrote about my way-too-early predictions for 2020, specifically that Donald Trump's going to win re-election. I cover all the all of the different fundamentals that I think are going to take play in 2020 and why those are going to favor Donald Trump moving forward. There's obviously going to be a lot of ups and downs throughout this year as we head towards the November election, but I think you can look at sort of some of the broader aspects to the election and how they're going to impact everything moving forward. The second thing I wrote about is how Democrats have no power over Mitch McConnell or the Senate. You may recall that right now Democrats are engaged in sort of a game of chicken trying to figure out whether or not they can use impeach and withhold as a means of gaining leverage over the Senate and withholding the articles of impeachment that they passed in the House as a means of dictating terms of how the Senate will conduct its trial. And in the end, they don't have any leverage over the Senate at all. And I cover both the legal and political reasons for why that is the case and why Lawrence Tribe, who has been advocating this on behalf of Democrats, is just an absolute idiot. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up at my website at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. You'll get all of the links to my columns as well as the newsletter, which will be back this week. That's just the easiest way to get all my columns analysis to you. That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about any more spam. It's just about getting my newsletter and the columns each week. So finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get those podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me within the iTunes algorithm, and so I look forward to hearing from those reviews. I heard some good reviews this week about how one one of my listeners was listening to me out while he was hunting and got a pretty nice kill with a deer, so if you're looking for something to listen to while you're hunting or something else, I will happily take those reviews as well. All right, so we're going to jump into this week's show. This week, I'm covering the big news item of the leak, which is the military strike on Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian commander, and what you need to know about that. It's obviously sort of a complex situation because it involves the Middle East and Iran, so we're going to walk through sort of who he is, what you need to know, and what all the discussion is moving forward with that. And then we're also going to talk about the two big domestic issues right now, since it's sort of been a quiet holiday season through both Christmas and New Year's, and that is impeachment and then an update on the Democratic 2020 field and what we know right now, which admittedly isn't much, but we have a new poll out of CBS, and I'll talk about that and why the polling that we have right now isn't that great. So those are the topics for today's show, and we'll jump right in. So the big story of the week is obviously the U.S. military strike on Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani. I think I'm getting his name right. I tried to listen to a couple different news clips to try to figure out how people were saying it. You see about two or three different ways to spell it, and uh, the Associated Press has their main version, and I think that's what we're all going to end up going with. But the pronunciation and the way you spell it vary. Um, He's known officially as Qasem Soleimani, and what he's referred to in the West is the Shadow Commander. And that was a name that got uh, placed upon him early on after a 2013 
profile of him in New Yorker magazine. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it's pretty, it's well worth a read just because it was done in 2013. So it's away from all of the political tribalism that you're looking at now when he wasn't a major target. It was just a journalist going out in the field and doing a major profile on a person who's impacted both United States and Israeli and just Middle East policy overall because he pretty much ran Iran's foreign policy in the Middle East. He handled it stance in Iraq, towards Israel, towards the United States, and a bunch of other countries, and he helped them run training and efforts to support the various terrorist organizations that Iran helps out. Because you have to remember about Iran, they are an official state sponsor of terrorism. They help Hezbollah and other groups um, hurt both civilians and countries like Israel and the United States just about everywhere. So you, when you're talking about Qasem Soleimani, you're talking about one of the key guys who directs Iran's foreign policy in the Middle East. You, you hear about all the policy that Tehran puts out, but the guy who was actually on the ground doing negotiations, helping build strategy, was Soleimani, or the shadow commander as he was known. So he was the top commander in Iran. He led sort of their special ops um, sort of across the board in all these countries. He helped them form intel. He ran Iran's plans in Iraq and Syria. Those are the two main countries that you'll hear him involved in because he helped support the Syrian the Syrian government that currently has chemical weapons and has opposed the U.S. in multiple different situations. And so he did that and the Middle East in general. And in Iraq, what he's done is he's helped bring in infiltration into the Iraqi government to help bring in pro Iran sentiment in the government to do what Iran wants. Basically, what the Iranians want to do is set up a puppet government in Iraq so that they have sort of this hedge against themselves and the West. They have a pact with Russia to their north, and so if they can build a, a, a sort of a puppet government in Baghdad, it will allow them to have a buffer zone between them and anybody else and also makes it harder for the U.S. or Israel to engage in bombing runs on them. So it allows them just to build in peace their nuclear weapons that they've wanted for a long time. You hear people talk about the Iran deal and how it was going to help prevent a nuclear Iran, but really all it would have done in the end was delay it somewhat. Iran always wanted nuclear power to make themselves untouchable, and neither Israel nor the United States nor the rest of the Middle East wants that to happen because it would create a very dangerous situation with Iran because you don't want a rogue nation like that to have nuclear weapons. So it's very important in what they're doing and who these commanders are and what Iran is doing. So Soleimani was a target of both the Bush and Obama administrations. They knew about him. They knew about his rise. He started out in the Iraq-Iran war in the 1980s. He was a volunteer in that campaign and rapidly worked his way up through the ranks and was well-known and was highly respected in Iran for all of his work there. And both the Bush and Obama administrations both knew about him, and they never decided to execute a strike on him because they feared reprisals by the Iranians. He's such a high-ranking figure within the Iranian government and has such an impact on everything that happens over there that both the administrations didn't feel like it was an appropriate time to strike and cut him down where he was. 
but he was a target. You can talk to anybody on either sides of the political aisle and all the reporters and journalists. They will tell you that both the Bush administration and the Obama administration, especially after 2013, the Obama administration, when they started their drone campaign, they saw him as a potential target. But because they wanted the deal in Iran to help prevent nuclear weapons, they were not going to go about striking Suleiman. So he was able to walk free across the Middle East and do whatever he wanted. And that was especially true in this case. The the strike in this case that occurred happened in Iraq when Soleimani was traveling to Iraq to talk to some of the support that he had built up there, both with the prime minister and the politicians in the government. And this was part of that. The United States government found out about it and hit him at the airport, I believe it was, in Baghdad. So Suleiman was a bad guy. He was a target from, for both the Bush and Obama administrations and the Trump administration because he had blood on his hand. He literally helped direct attacks against U.S. soldiers and against the U.S. military in Iraq. So when, you're t- when people are talking about the threat that he posed to Americans, it's because he directly impacted the Iraq war and has directed both terrorist groups and Iranian forces in killing American troops in Iraq specifically, but also since you're involved, you have terrorists involved, it's also happening abroad. So he was the one who helped put all this together. He was a hardliner. He supported the nationalist government in Iran, and he put down, helped put down multiple uprisings among the people in the Iranian government. And he's been very active in Iraq and helping, pers- and helping push back against U.S. policy there. So when you're talking about him and his impact on the region, it was huge. He was literally pretty much without equal in that region, because you're talking about a guy who directed just about everything that Iran did there. And he was largely unknown. I mean, I frankly, I didn't know about him until I started reading some of these longer profiles, and I chose to start with some of the older ones, just because it was outside the confines of the Trump administration and all of the Iran deal shenanigans that you see during 2015, when that was hitting its peak. So, before that, you were seeing all these journalists cover him and just sort of laying out why he was a threat to the United States. So what the Trump administration said here was that he posed an imminent threat to the United States because he was help, helping to plan and plot potential um, attacks against American troops in Iraq. And While they use the word imminent threat, I don't know that you have any direct proof that that was the case, but he was, without a a doubt and without a question, an ongoing threat because he helped direct attacks against U.S. military members there. The only reason that you see people not want to hit him in a strike is because they fear that Iran would do more. They're already attacking U.S. troops and U.S. bases and embassies. This would just encourage them to do more. So that was the main reason for why no one wanted anyone to touch him, including in the West. So that's sort of who he is in sort of a nutshell. He was a major player, a major commander in the Iranian government, helped lead some of their special forces, and directed the his portfolio mostly contained Iraq, Syria, and some other Middle East nations. So he was a very big player there. The big question that came out of this was how the Trump administration said that they had the legal authority to strike him. And their main answer was under the 2002 AUMF, that is, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, which was passed by Congress in 2002 in order to go after Saddam Hussein and Iraq and liberate them. So that was where that authorization 
came from. Now, as you know, we've been there for much longer than that. U.S. forces have been there since 2003. So what you're seeing here with this AMF is that it's continued and Congress has continued to fund our efforts there and to build a friendly government in Iraq. It's not just about toppling Saddam Hussein. It's about building a new government and a new country there that is friendly towards the United States, which gives us a strong foothold in the Middle East to allow us to direct what's happening there. And it puts us on the, on the door, on the front door of Iran, since they are neighbors. So that's the main threat there. Iran doesn't want us in Iraq because that puts us on their doorstep, and they're going to do anything that they can to push back against that. Countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia are thankful that we're there for a lot of reasons, mainly because it pushes back against Iran and puts a threat of the United States in the region. And it also gives them uh, the ability to fly through that area and hit Iran when needed. So a lot of this is about strategic positioning in the Middle East and allowing us to have those footholds there. So the legality of this strike comes from that. Now you'll hear people say, well, this wasn't about striking anyone related to the Iraqi government. It wasn't about anything about toppling Saddam Hussein. And while I would agree, you also have to understand that the AUMF has been used for over a decade now. We're closing in on two decades at this rate. We will in a few years of supporting U.S. involvement in Iraq. So what Congress has done is continually fund efforts to protect and defend that Iraqi government and continue to pour resources into rebuilding and training people there. So what Soleimani poses was a threat to U.S. efforts there, and striking him pushes back a major player. Now, while it does involve Iran, it also involves other terrorist organizations who are there trying to cripple what we are doing in that region, and removing him allows us to strengthen our hold on that government to allow us to have more direction and guidance on what happens in the Middle East. So I don't think the legality of this is as much of a problem as some on the left are saying, simply because we have that AUMF. And while it may be stretching it at this point to say that we're still there, the Congress continues to fund our efforts, and they're not pushing back in any major way. So saying that Trump lacked the, lacks any legality here to do that is just a joke. Since 2013 on, the Obama administration pursued a very aggressive drone policy in cutting down a lot of these terrorist leaders. Now, they didn't target anyone from Iran because they were trying to build a, a potential deal with Iran to stop and or really slow down their new nuclear ambitions. So there's a lot of moving parts here between all these different groups. So this is really about defending the Iraqi government and it's about Soleimani subverting U.S. efforts there. And this strike cuts him down. It cuts down the support he was giving to terrorist networks and also to anti-U.S. militias that were causing chaos in Iraq. So it's less, like I said, it's less accurate to call him an imminent threat and more accurate to call him an ongoing threat to U.S. activities over there and to assets that we have over there because Iran has continually engaged in threatening actions to us. And between Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump, Trump was the one who decided to pull the trigger on this one. So that leads us to the next major thing here, which is over 
the trending topic, which was World War III. Everyone seems to think that since we've, we've issued this strike, that puts us in a stance of war because we struck a major U.S. military commander with Iran. I tend to not think that this is the case. It's just another exhibit in an ongoing proxy war that the United States has had with Iran in the Iraq area, and this is about pushing Iran out of Iraq as best as we can. It's not going to be complete, and it won't be thorough in the way that we need it to be, but it, it is our goal. And also, Iran and the United States don't want an all-out war for their own reasons. Strikes are within our military toolbox and strategic goals. So it's when you're looking at what the United States is going to do here and what the Iran's response is going to be here, I don't believe all-out war is going to be the all-out answer. Iran has been retaliating and striking the United States in various ways for several months, steadily here for the last few months, and really over the past year or so. They shot down one of our drones and displayed it in one in a way for all the media to see, and even allowed in Western journalists to some Western journalists to see it and report back, and showed it a sort of propaganda effort to say that Iran was hitting the United States in ways. They've shot missiles and other things at our vessels. They've tried to stop them. They've shut down shipping lanes in various oceans and key shipping lanes for us. They've attacked our embassies and they've been inf- infiltrating the Iraqi government. And those are just some of the highlights. They've obviously done a lot more. Iran has been impacting United States policy, attacking troops, and doing things that, while you hear a lot on the left say, well, us striking one of their commanders is an act of war, Iran has been doing more than enough to consider themselves at war with the United States. We are striking back. This is not an all-out war. It is a strategic strike that we are using in much the same way that the Obama administration used heavily, you know, they really started ramping up their drone efforts after 2003. And you can even go back and find some conservative groups who are very happy that the, that this was a tool that the Obama administration was using simply because drone attacks do, they, they're a high reward thing with a lower risk to us. We're not risking losing any men or having boots on the ground. We're only risking our technology, which can fly in and execute these pinpoint pricks to get rid of people that we don't want. That causes chaos in the ranks of these terrorist organizations and even in foreign governments. So that's the point here. It's strategic and it's about hitting people where they least expect it. When we know where they're going to be with minimal casualties on the civilian side and a high value of knocking out these types of commanders who have just a wide a wide impact on everyone in the region. And if we remove those, you're potentially removing these threats to our soldiers over there. And it's not just in Iraq. It's in places like Afghanistan and elsewhere. You want these threats removed. And that's what's happening here. So Iran has been a continual threat to the United States in this way. They've continually been pushing back, and this is one of our first ways of retaliating and responding in kind to them and basically warning them, saying, if you do more of these things, we're not going to go to war with you, but we will start inflicting harsh casualties for you. We're going to lose these commanders who you know we know you want in the field, and we're also going to continue our sanctions against you. So we're going to strangle your economy and we're going to target these commanders that mean a lot to you. And so if you're going to continue doing this to us, it's going to impact you in ways you're not going to want. 
These are effectively our warning shots to them. We don't want to go to war, but we will hit you incredibly hard. This is what's known as just strategic, smart use of military power. It's sort of the new way where we engage these proxy wars in these Middle Eastern countries. This, obviously, is a more direct way to impact it because it is one country hitting another, but the odds of us going to war here are virtually non-existent. We're not going to do that. Iran would have to do something incredibly serious to enforce us to put boots on the ground, and we know that's not what they want. They just want to appear strong and appear like they're doing something. But in reality, they don't want us going into an all-out war. They don't want that. We don't want that. So you're just going to see these tit-for-tats things where they're going to do things, where they're going to continue threatening our embassies and maybe doing other things. You're seeing the State Department tell U.S. citizens to get out of places like Iraq because it's going to be dangerous there. You're probably going to see Iran try to kidnap various U.S. citizens and hold them hostage or even execute them because you have to treat Iran like you would a terrorist organization. Their resources are the same, except they're trying to get nuclear power. And that's why this deal that the Obama administration cut with them was so bad. All it did was slow down their ambitions if they obeyed it, and they've never obeyed any part of this in any meaningful way. They were basically set up to where if they wanted to get a nuclear a nuke sooner than, than what the deal had, they could easily spin up their reactors and do exactly that. They're not going to obey that. They're not going to do what you want. And so doing this acknowledges the foreign policy reality on the ground. Now, what are the next steps here and what's going to happen? Frankly, no one knows. You can look at what the interests are of everybody involved and kind of say, okay, this is kind of where things could go, but we ultimately don't know the answer to that question. The Obama and Bush administrations declined to strike Soleimani because they they just saw this as they didn't see the benefits as outweighing the costs, and so they refused to strike him. In the Obama administration's case, obviously it came down to that deal. Under the Bush administration, while they could have struck him, they were more they were more focused on figuring out how to solve the problem of Iraq. And so you saw the surge and our surge of troops in Iraq being the major thing that they were focused on. So you had these different these different focuses and these different importance areas for both administrations. And for the Trump administration, a lot of those same pressures are gone, so they're looking for ways to impact the region without going full force in like you see in so many other places. So no one really knows what's going to happen here. You obviously can expect retaliation, but I don't think either country is going to go too far in that in that direction. They, Iran has flexed, obviously, on the Iran deal. They're trying to say that they're going to get out of certain parts of it, but they've also clarified parts of that because they don't want to say that they've completely left it because they need some of the benefits, especially on the economic sides of that deal. But they're going to use Trump as an excuse to move towards a nuclear weapon faster than what they've agreed to. And they're going to use his actions here as a way, as an excuse to do more violent things in the region. In reality, that's just that's just all cover and it's all a smokescreen. They were already going to do a lot of these things, whether or not Donald Trump struck Soleimani or not. This was already on their radar. And so they just wanted to have this political justification of something that they're already going to do. And you're seeing some things, some stories that were just wildly overblown. Over the weekend, some Western journalists started reporting that the Iraqi government had passed a resolution that was going to kick American troops out of Iraq and end American occupation there, and that was wrong. 
what needed to happen and what needed to be reported wasn't. Most Western journalists were just reporting straight up Iranian propaganda. And we know that because what actually happened is that a lot of people didn't end up voting on that resolution and it was pushed by the people in the Iraqi government that we know are being influenced by Tehran and Iran and the intelligence services there in Iran. So that's what they're doing. These are mostly pro-Iranian politicians who are either paid off or are secretly working for directly for the Iranian government. These are people who want what Iran wants. They are not either for the United States or Iraq. They are plants there. They're the type of people who were coaxed into doing this by Suleiman and others. And so they are enemies both, I would say, of both Iraq and and just of the Iraqi people. So Iraq isn't pushing Americans out. They are they're basically trying to get reporters to say that, but that is actually not what's happening here. And like I said, that's not what happened. A lot of people didn't end up voting, and the people who did vote were mostly pro-Iranian politicians. So journalists, in the end, are just spreading Iranian propaganda on that front. Iran wants nukes and excuses to crack down on the protesters on the domestic side. The, the various sanctions that we've put in place on Iran have harmed them significantly, and they're looking for ways to both get around that as well as put down the protests that are happening domestically, which are springing up because of these sanctions, because economic conditions there are getting bad, and the people don't want to deal with this. They would rather not be in this position on a foreign policy front with the United States. They would rather be in a peaceful position where they can live in economic peace and prosperity. And the way that the Iranian government is moving and positioning itself, they're not being allowed that. So that's causing these protests. So what Iran is looking for is reasons to crack down and remove all these internal threats to them. So what we need to do is to continually tighten those sanctions and choke off their money flow. We need to do the strike on one of their commanders was the decapitation of sorts, where you're kind of cutting off the head on one of the main threats. We don't know how things are going to reposition after that, just because he had his hand in so many different things in Iran, and so people you're going to have to see, you're going to see various people step up and control various aspects of the portfolio that Sulaimani was dealing with over there, and so. We're gonna. It's gonna take a second to see how they restructure themselves and sort of respond to this. There will be a response. We know they'll retaliate, but we also don't know how much chaos is gonna be caused by this strike. So you need to stay tuned to that and watch for that confusion. It is ultimately in the interest of the United States that chaos and disorder reign in Iran because it weakens them and allows us to have more control over what's happening in Iraq. Because if Iran can only focus on what's happening domestically within it, that turns their eye inward and outside and away from places like Iraq, Syria, and our allies in the region like Israel. The more that there is distressed on the domestic side in Iran, the better off it is for the United States and our allies in the region. And the thing you have to watch out here, not just for that, but in the West, is for the Iran echo chamber. And I have a column coming out on this. Late Monday, you'll see it. And it just it rehashes sort of the, the problems that we saw with the Iran deal in the West, especially in the media, where they 
they were repeating things that were coming from what was known as the Iran echo chamber. It was people and journalists and organizations who were paid off to push the Obama administration's viewpoint and the Iranian government's uh, propaganda that they were not a threat and anyone who opposed Iran or wanted to strike back against Iran ultimately just wanted war and that's all they wanted at all. When that's not, it's not war or deal or don't do a strike or you're going to war. It's not that. It's not a either or proposition. This is about using a military power strategically and the people who push the you have to support the deal or you just want war, that line of narrative spinning, they're back clearly in this case and the media is repeating the same things that we saw last time. And so you have to watch out for that echo chamber that says the same thing over and over again, no matter what the facts are, because they existed last time, they were exposed. It would be nice if they were exposed again. So again, look for that column to come out on Monday. It covers all of the arguments there and sort of the the pieces and the evidence that revealed what was happening with the pro Iranian government stuff that was coming out in the United States media. So that's a bad thing. Keep an eye on that and keep an eye on shifts that happen in the Iranian government to cover this loss of one of their commanders. When we come back, we'll cover the best, some of the best stories in the United States, and then we'll get you out of here. And we're back. And to, I, called, I, I kind of titled this section the domestic update because I wanted to cover two topics kind of quickly, and that is impeachment and the Democratic primaries. And not a ton has changed on either of them, but it's worth talking about where we are now and where things are headed for the rest of this month because it's going to be a busy month on both of those fronts. So first off, on impeachment, Democrats are continuing with their strategy of impeach and withhold. I've written a litany of columns on this point and talked about it here on the podcast. If you go back to past episodes and... My latest column covered how Democrats just have no power over the Senate. They don't have any power over Mitch McConnell to make him do what they want them to do, and they don't have any power to dictate terms to the Senate. Now, what a lot of what you see Democrats wanting is they're wanting live witnesses, and they're wanting all these new witnesses to testify in the Senate who didn't testify in the House. Now, they give all these different reasons for why they want this, and they may sound convincing, but what you need to go is look back at precedents on this point, and Republicans are not going to honor that. Because if you go back to the Clinton impeachment, which is the last one that we had to deal with, there were no live witnesses during the Clinton impeachment. Democrats did not want a single live witness. They had depositions taken of the key witnesses who were used in the House. They did not bring in any new witnesses in that case, and they focused only on what the House brought to them and the charges that the House brought. What Lawrence Tribe, the Harvard Law professor and Democrat who is pushing Nancy Pelosi's buttons here and forcing her to do this strategy, which is entirely stupid, what he wants is a trial that focuses not only on what the House has sent over, but on new witnesses, and he wants the option to bring in new charges that the House never brought on the impeachment front. He wants the Senate to consider things and all these new things to put pressure on Republicans to do that. That's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen because there's nothing that Democrats can do to force that to happen. It's not what's happened in the past, and it's not what's going to happen 
here, Mitch McConnell, and Democrats can hold these articles for forever. Mitch McConnell can either choose to play along with the game, because as long as Democrats are refusing to hand him over the articles, the Senate doesn't have to take a single vote. He can just sit back and confirm as many more judges as he wants, because there's nothing else to do. If Democrats are going to try to move this impeachment forward, it immediately changes what the Senate's going to do and forces them to do to actually focus on a trial in, in the Senate. And so there, he's just going to sit back and confirm more judges and do what he wants to do. And as long as that's happening, Democrats are going to sit there and they're going to have these articles. But Donald Trump, who they're accusing of doing all these wrong things, is also not getting his day in court. So it looks even more partisan than what you would think normally. Because what Democrats want is to rig this trial process in their favor. And that's just not going to happen. There's no leverage that they have. They're withholding the articles. Okay, so what? Like I said, McConnell's going to sit here and confirm more judges. If he gets the articles, he's going to look at what the Democrats sent over. He's not going to bring in any new witnesses. He's only going to focus on the exact witnesses that the House said that they wanted to talk to. Because you have to remember, the House passed these articles of impeachment saying that all these witnesses who they're now saying are important were not important during their process. So if they only needed these things to move their charges forward, why should Republicans return the favor and go through more witnesses who were not important? Because Democrats said that they passed this obstruction article that says Donald Trump obstructed justice by doing all of this. And the reality is they didn't want to fight the Trump administration in court or negotiate with, with him over whether or not they were going to get to talk to these witnesses or get the documents that they wanted. And so they just passed the articles of impeachment anyway, despite not having that and saying that it was both important and unimportant. And the Senate is under no obligation at all to clean up what Democrats have done. There's absolutely no obligation for the Senate to do what the House refused to do in this situation. McConnell can move and do this trial however he wants the they have rules currently that govern the process of impeachment, but those can be changed. Now, Lawrence Tribe is going around saying, oh, you know, it takes a two-thirds majority to change the Senate rules, and so this is how I'm going to force them to do this. Okay, well, that was also true of things like confirming judges and other things. If McConnell wanted to end that and use the nuclear option on changing Senate rules and just change that to a simple majority, he could do that as well, and he could make the Senate impeachment rules whatever he wanted them to be. Now, I don't even think he has to do that. I, don't, I think if he wanted to, he could flat out ignore the procedural rules because the Constitution gives the Senate the legal authority to handle the trial however it wants. Those procedural rules, there's no court that's ever going to come in and say, oh, this was an improper impeachment and the Senate didn't follow its procedures. That's a non-justiciable political issue, which means which means no court's going to touch it. Procedural rules are decided by the House and the Senate in their respective chambers. No court has the legal authority to come in and dictate to them otherwise that they have to follow certain rules or procedures. So this gambit that Tribe and his ilk are pushing is without merit at all. The rules can either be changed, they can be ignored, it doesn't matter. Because the Senate, if McConnell wanted to, he could just send the entire impeachment process to a committee and have them do that. And we know this because we, we do have a case on that point. There was a judge, ironically enough, with the last name Nixon, who sued the Senate because he got impeached, but he was not impeached by the full 
Senate vote. In other words, he was his impeachment trial and everything was sent before a Senate committee so that the Senate could continue on with what it was doing already. Well, if McConnell wanted to do the same, exact same thing with the president here, he could do that. He could absolutely do that. Nothing demands right now that a full vote take, full vote take place. He could send it to a committee and call it a day. He could do to Democrats what they did to Donald Trump in the House by sending all these things to their committees and making a mockery of the process. If McConnell wanted to do that, he absolutely could. There's nothing demanding that the Senate take a full vote, a full floor vote, I should say. So all of these options are open to McConnell. This entire impeachment withhold thing is a joke that's being pushed by a Harvard law professor and an the fact that anybody's listening to this lunatic who has pushed multiple conspiracy theories, I can link to just a few of the ones that he's pushed, where he's, he, it's not just these pushed conspiracy theories, he's reading some of the most well-known grifters, I would be the only word that I could find to describe these people, people who are putting, pushing open falsehoods in order to advance themselves monetarily, and he, Lawrence Drive, passes these things along like they're the honest truth. If a Nigerian prince came to Lawrence Tribe and told him, oh, I've got this information that proves that Donald Trump is guilty, and also I've got beachfront property in Kansas, judging by the way Tribe tweets every day, he would be on that, like white on rice. He would absolutely believe at hook, line, and sinker. He is a moron. And I don't use that word lightly because he's Harvard Law educated, but the things that he has said on this are just flat wrong from start to finish. He's a joke. And that joke is the one pushing the Democratic impeachment thought process right now. So for everyone who continually says, oh yeah, Nancy Pelosi, she's a smooth political operator, and she's very savvy, and she doesn't do anything that's stupid, this is stupid. This is straight up stupid. This is her moment where that it was similar to John Boehner, where he knew that the government shutdown was a dumb idea, would hurt Republicans, and he had no leverage whatsoever. Nancy Pelosi's in the same position here. She has absolutely, it's not that she doesn't have a weak hand, she has no hand here. She's not holding a pair of twos in her hand. She has absolutely nothing. She has junk in her hands. McConnell holds all the cards here legally and politically. And so this entire thing is just a joke from start to finish. And it benefits Republicans. I ultimately think you're probably going to see somebody send a jokingly send Lawrence Tribe or Nancy Pelosi a fruit basket or some flowers or something just because they're Senate Republicans are ecstatic with what Democrats are doing right now. And if you just watch MSNBC or CNN, you would never know that. You would think that Senate Republicans were just in this deep trouble. But in reality, they're not. There's nothing harming a single Senate Republican right now. That's the reality, both legally and politically. So you can continue watching this process. I don't think there's much to watch here. Just sit back and laugh at Republicans and laugh at Nancy Pelosi because she's really dug herself a hole here. The next thing I wanted to cover in this domestic update was the Democratic primary. The big problem with the Democratic primary is that there's very little polling right now. And so no one knows what's happening in the field or where people really stand, both in places like Iowa and New Hampshire or nationally speaking. Yes, there have been a few polls, but it's been all through Christmas and New Year's. And polling through that time is both 
slower and it's also harder because there are few people at home and it's harder to get a representative sample. So the next two weeks are going to be really key for the Democratic primary because it's largely going to dictate what's going to happen in the early states. And so we're going to find out this week with our first batch of post-holiday polling. We do have a new poll from CBS who did get a poll out and showed what they saw in Iowa. So what they saw and what was really interesting here is that Biden... Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg are all tied at 23%. Elizabeth Warren sits in fourth at 16%, and Amy Klobuchar is at 7%, rounding out the top five, which means after that, no one else is really worth talking about. So you've seen the field coalesce here around five candidates. Three of them are tied at the top in Iowa, and you have Warren at 16%. I think the funniest comment I saw about that was that the field was 23 and me, referencing Elizabeth Warren, because three people have 23%, and Elizabeth Warren has 16. So it's 23 and me for her, referencing her, her failed DNA test to prove that she was, in fact, a Native American. I mean, seriously, have you looked at her? She's not a Native American. Anyway... That's Iowa. So you have three people tied at the top and Warren at 16%. Now, her 16% is actually important here because in Iowa, anyone who gets above 15% in the final vote tallies gets delegates. So all you have to hit is the threshold of 15%. So if you have, even if she only has 16%, that gets her above that mark, which means there are four candidates here, which would be the first time ever, that walk away with delegates in Iowa. So if we do see this, it, I'm interested to see what's going to happen because you have a five-person race and four people come away with delegates. That means that if that happens, the field is still wide open after Iowa. And we don't have votes that's going to actually going to happen until the end of January. And you've got this five-person race with four people qualified to get votes right now. And it wouldn't take much for that fifth person to jump up and get in there either. Any of these people could leak support to Amy Klobuchar and end up giving her a boost to get above the 15% threshold. She's only eight points away, so all she has to double is where she is right now, and she's within range of that. So getting above 15% equals a delegate vote. If you get multiple people like that doing that, what's going to happen? I, I don't know. I think the important thing here to watch is going to be how the media covers it. Because if they cover who, you know, quote-unquote, wins the Iowa primaries, that's going to give whoever, you know, wins a boost. But if they cover it as cover this as a contested field where no one really wins and everyone comes away with delegates, that's going to mix things up greatly when you're walking into New Hampshire. So it, the media's coverage of this is going to matter a lot in the Democratic primaries. If you cover whoever wins this as a winner, it's going to give them that aura of a winner and boost them into New Hampshire. If no true winner comes out of this, then no one knows what's going to happen here. It's going to end up a scrambled field, and it's going to come down to Super Tuesday. You're going to see all these different things, because if you see all these different people split, the, split these states and split the vote, then... There's no telling what's going to happen. And so I think watching media coverage and seeing how they sort of dictate and spin all the results in Iowa is going to dictate a lot moving forward. And uh, that also raises the possibility, again, we're back here, of a contested convention. 
And this is something that I'm just cheering for as a political science nerd because I would love nothing more than to see a contested convention at the Democratic Convention where they're having to fight down multiple ballots because what happens is you have multiple ballots where the delegates at the convention vote on who they're going to be the nominee. And normally at this point, you can get that on the first ballot where you've got enough delegates and all the vote totals to determine who these people are going to vote for on the first or second ballot. And that's going to win you the nomination. But if no one can get a majority, that means you're going to have to cobble together a coalition at the convention, and that's where things get really interesting real quick. And it's not about who's your first choice, it's going to be who's your second or third choice. So you could conceivably see here, if people keep splitting these states, and this actually happens, that we come up with a contested convention and it's going to get real interesting from there because people are going to be accusing each other of rigging things. You're going to get infighting in the Democratic field with all these different candidates and all these different all these different uh, segments of the party. They're all going to fight it out. And we've seen some of that play out here in the primaries, but Democrats are trying to keep a lid on it to show some sort of unity in the face of facing Donald Trump. We've seen people like Julian Castro drop out of the race his vote support is eventually going to start trickling into these other candidates. So we're going to watch, you know, it's sort of like with Beto and some of these others who dropped out. Their supporters are going to start moving elsewhere. Now, some of these people didn't have a ton, but even if you're poll- polling 1% to 3%, that's still a f- enough movement can is significant when you, we've got three people tied. So if all his supporters move to someone like Biden, all of a sudden he's going to get a boost of, you know, a couple of points in these places like Iowa. Or it could boost somebody like Bernie Sanders, who has a very who has both a steady floor of support, but also a low ceiling that he can get in the Democratic Party because he's basically, nationally, it's hard for him to get beyond 15%. That's about his base of support in the party. But you get him to, if that's enough to get delegates, it's going to make him a very powerful kingmaker come convention time. So there's all kinds of things Moving around here and polling over the next two weeks is going to be critical in deciding what's happening in the Democratic field. A divided field can make for an interesting coalitions to emerge. You may see different candidates try to group up together to try to stop somebody like Bernie Sanders. You saw that happen in 2016 and 2015 and 2016 with Donald Trump when various campaigns started banding together just to try to defeat him. Um, if people see Biden or Sanders as a certain kind of threat... It may impact things. And looming out there, too, you have Michael Bloomberg, who's just dropping just just boatloads and barges of money on this race to get himself into a respectable position. And where he might not have any impact, he won't have any impact at all in these early states, he could have a direct impact in a place like Super Tuesday, where he can just blanket the airwaves on Super Tuesday across all these states in ways that all of these other candidates can't. They have to rely on the momentum of winning or placing well in a state in order to get that momentum in on Super Tuesday. Bloomberg can just blast these states. So can Tom Steyer. So that's those are you have these two wild cards that are impacting things as well. They're building up their own small base of support, even while you they're not really gaining much traction in the field. So there are all kinds of things that could happen here. And right now the the race for the Democratic nomination is as just from what we can tell now, is as wide open as it's ever been. It may not be true, we may see the polls move, but right now it looks as wide open as it's ever been, and if you're like me, cheering for that contested convention, it's the best news of the new year.
That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter that goes out early Friday morning. Remember, that's back this week. So if you want that, make sure to sign up for it and you'll get it the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again. But until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And this week, I leave you with the two monstrous plays. Just absolutely monstrous, huge plays that won the Titans the game over the New England Patriots. My Titans beat the Patriots in the wild card round. I'm so happy to see them moving on to face one of the teams I hate the most in the, in the football, the Baltimore Ravens. There's a long history going back there with the former Houston Oilers, the Tennessee Oilers, and then the Tennessee Titans going into the playoffs at the old AFC Central. I remember them all, and I would like to see the Titans win again this next week and get some revenge for things the, the Ravens did in the past. But for this week, I'm ecstatic that the Titans have beat the New England Patriots. I'd like to thank the New York Jets for helping us out by beating the Steelers, and I'd like to thank the Miami Dolphins for Ryan Tannehill and beating Patriots in Week 17 to set this matchup up. And so here is the call from Jim Nance and Tony Robo on CBS, calling both the gorgeous punt by Brett Kern and then Logan Ryan's magical pick six that ended the game and potentially ended the Patriots' dynasty. They blocked four punts this season. Most in the league. And Kern gets a line drive punt away that's bounding to a halt at the one. Perfection. Dire straits indeed, Jim. This one just got us. I mean, it's we'll never see this run again, Jim. Brady's pass. It's intercepted and returned for a touchdown by Logan Ryan, the former Patriots. He didn't drop it this time. No, he didn't. Gets a second chance. 